electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Dean, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the state of stocks and your money, following yet another turbulent week in the market. So where do we go from here? as earnings season really starts to heat up. Is a viable bottom in tech getting closer? We debate all of that, as always, with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Kerry Firestone, Steve Weiss, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's do what we always do to start things off. I'm going to show you the markets, where they are ticking at this very moment. Dow's down 79 S&P 500 down one-half of 1%, 4456 NASDAQ is lower by 1%, yet again down 135 points, still hanging on to 14,000, albeit slightly. And the 10-year note yield backing off a bit. Yields, uh, yields are falling. 176 is the note on the 10-year. Pete, we've had a lot of severe technical damage. It's within the Dow. It's within many different sectors. The NASDAQ 100 the Nasdaq itself closing in correction below the 200-day moving average. And I was going to begin this conversation today by asking whether we maybe are getting to a viable bottom in some of these areas that have been technically obliterated. Until I found out about three minutes before we're coming on the air that you bought Netflix <laughs> shares today, which to me says a lot about I many did. things. But let's begin there. And let's show the chart. Mm -hmm. We know the stock was getting crushed on earnings. Tell me why you decided to do that today. Well, this is a stock that we've been talking about for a while now. It was a couple hundred points off of the high, Scott, before it even reported the earnings, then add another 25% to that. And then all of a sudden you start to look at Netflix and you look at it in a little bit of different way, right? Because suddenly you look at a P.E. ratio that's far different than it once was. So that was one of the, one of the thoughts that I had going into this. I said last night I was on the evening show, uh, the 15th anniversary of the evening show, and we were talking about a lot of things. That was going to be my final trade. I wanted to look and see where things were going for Netflix today. The guidance was what was really the worst part of what that report was. They were basically in line with some of the other things when you looked at the earnings themselves. But obviously there's competition. They brought up competition and they addressed that. We also know the international world is probably pandemic issues as well that are, that are affecting that. And that is where the major growth is for Netflix. So after looking at this and not being in this stock for a long period of time, I waited patiently throughout this morning. And then suddenly, just a, less than an hour ago or so, we had a large buyer of calls in Netflix, also a seller of puts in Netflix. So what that tells me is somebody's out there looking for this stock to maybe 
at least get a little bit of a bump to the upside in the relative near term. We're talking about the, the you know month, two months, a little bit of a bump back up a little bit. So because of that, because of that option activity that I'd seen in there, that was helping to trigger for something I was already looking for. We always say have a list out, right? Well, my list was out and on my list was Netflix and I wanted to see it and I, w- I wanted to see what kind of option activity we would see in there. Yesterday, there was a lot of put activity. They were wrong, Scott. They were dead wrong. I'm hoping this activity we're seeing today isn't wrong. When I say put activity was wrong, they were actually selling the downside put, just thinking it was going to be easy to collect money for a day. It wasn't easy at all. As a matter of fact, probably losing more than about 35, maybe up to $40 million on a trade, the size and the numbers that they put up. So um, I'm hoping on on the options that we're seeing this time, this is going to be a little bit more accurate. And it makes more sense to me as well. Sure. So, Kerry, this this doesn't really become a Netflix conversation, and I don't want to do a deep dive at this moment in the program about Netflix itself. This really is about opportunity in a market that's gotten hammered and certain stocks that have gotten really hit a lot that the fundamentals still seem to be sound. Do do you feel as though we're reaching a point within this sell-off, the volatility and the turbulence that we've witnessed, that now's the time to do a peat and to look at these stocks, regardless of, of, of why it's been down, but one that you've had your eye on and said, you know what, I may not pick the exact bottom, but this is darn near close enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the market has taken everything down with it. I mean, energy stocks notwithstanding. And if the, you look at a name like Autodesk or, or Facebook, I mean, we own those two booking holdings, charter communications, PayPal even. These are companies that have plenty of earnings and they're becoming a much lower P.E. stocks than they were just by virtue of what's gone on with the market. There are 165 stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, over 5 billion market cap that are down 35 percent or more since their 12-month peak. There's a lot to pick from. Many of those companies are names that are big, not small, not super gassed up companies that had these 500% moves last year and no earnings. You know, we're talking about companies that can really support themselves at a 20 multiple or or that range. Facebook, as an example, Google. Um, So, yes, I think this is a great time to start nibbling. Because the market is moving so fast, it's hard to pick. Of course, it's hard to pick a bottom. But I would say people who do what what Pete is doing today, that's smart. And I think that applies to many names across the board. I'm thinking of a name, Steve Weiss, like a Goldman Sachs, for example. Had a rare miss. Stock got absolutely hammered. I think it was down 8% or so, which you just don't see. You just don't see it. And the banks have had a really tough week. They kick off earnings season. Most of them were down. The KBE's down 7% week to date. That's the worst week since September of 2020. Come to find, you bought Goldman Sachs. I did. I added to it. I added small. My timing wasn't perfect. I added yesterday. Um, to your question, you know, is now the time to buy? Because uh, nobody can pick bottoms. Nobody can pick tops. And I would tell you, Generally, it's not. On special situations, Pete found one, Netflix, I found one in Goldman. But it depends what your view in the market is and what your view on the economy is and so many other factors. And frankly, rather than catch a falling knife, because I still have a negative view on the market, 
I still have a hawkish view on rates. I'd rather see the market stabilize and start to move up somewhat rather than continue to catch a falling knife. Look, you know, the market had no reason being where it was when it got there. And similarly, it may not have a reason to be where it is right now, but it's going to continue to overshoot. And by the way, the markets broke out into stocks. So forget the indices. We've got a bear market going on beneath those industries. You see stocks that have corrected more than 10%, that have corrected 20 30%. So I'm really not interested in getting involved. We went from FOMO, fear of missing out, to now fear of losing dough. So I'm more in the camp. I don't want to lose money. I hate losing money. I have the ability because of my strategy of being cash. I don't have to be fully invested. I don't have to be 90% invested. I don't have to be a strategist who has a whole wealth management team behind them that I've got to always be optimistic so we don't lose assets. I'm telling you that I don't want to lose more money. I'll wait to see the whites of their eyes, so to speak, on it moving up. And I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet. So, Jenny, UBS starts talking about uh, what they call a cathartic flush in the market. They say, while it's always hard to predict the bottom of any market sell-off, we believe the risk-reward for U.S. stocks is getting attractive. They're sticking to their target of 5,100. You recall Rick Reeder a couple days ago said stocks can still go up 10% this year. Last night on Mad Money, Jim Cramer said the stock market is getting closer to an investable bottom after the challenging start that we've had. So how do you view it today? And I might add, dividend stocks have held up a heck of a lot better than so many others have, which is your principal strategy. Right. So I like that Kramer says that we're getting closer because sure, we're getting closer. It's the same way people say, oh, when's the next big market collapse coming in? Every day that passes, we're getting closer to it. We are not there yet. And I think we've become incredibly soft and you know, sugar spoiled if we think that a 6% drawdown in the market is anything near enough to reprice the excessive risk taking that's happened over the past decade. This is, we are just in the early innings, I think, of a repricing of risk. And what I see as what's going on in the market right now, I don't think we're actually experiencing a broad-based sell-off. And that goes to your point of dividend stocks are okay, yeah. So we've got the S&P down six, We've got the ARC funds down 20. We have the Dow Jones Select Dividend Index up 0.72. We have the All Country World Index, excluding the U.S., so international stocks. They're actually up on the year. You've got tech down. You've got energy up. Energy's up 15% year-to-date, while tech is down 9. So what I see is this kind of like battlefield going on. But for, you know, for jumping broadly in, no, we're not there yet. Their multiples are still stretched. A 6%-ish pullback, I don't even know what to call it, does not re-rate valuations to the point where you can just say, oh, great, we've flushed out and we're getting back in. When Rick Reeder says 5,100, sure, I think that's totally possible by year end. But between now and then, there's likely to be a lot of messiness and a lot more pain. So, so I'm kind of excited. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so, so, so let, me, let me just stop um, you, you for a second. So you say we're nowhere near a bottom and you point to the 6% decline. Now, it, it is noteworthy, and you know exactly what I'm, I'm going to tell you now, is that many stocks, the ones that were most egregiously overvalued, per se, um, are the ones that have come down the most. They've obviously come down a lot more than 6%, and I could go down the list and give you 50 names to 100 mm-hmm. that are down 30, 40, 50, 70% from their, their 52-week highs. So if, if you don't think that we're anywhere close to a bottom, 
what do you think we we need to do from here to find that that bottom? And when you were saying that, I was wondering if you had breakfast with Jeremy Grantham, who's calling for like a 50 percent decline in stocks and and a major crash, because you certainly sound you certainly sound like you think we're going a lot lower from here. Although you perhaps did, did, did it more eloquently than saying we're going to have a 50% crash. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be a crash because I think there's this push and pull under the surface. So when I say I don't think we're anywhere near a bottom, what I mean is in the stocks that became really overextended. So for example, and we talked about this about three weeks ago when I was on, Zoom for example, right? Zoom never should have traded where it was. And we look at that and we say, okay, where might we be interested in Zoom? Because that is a really great company with real earnings. And you know where it would need to be? It would need to be in the 130 area. That's quite a bit lower. And that's where we would start to look at it. PayPal, for example, fantastic company. But I would need to see that around 150, maybe lower. Pinterest, around 25, we might be interested. DocuSign in the $100 range. And this is all saying, okay, at those prices, what would the multiple be? They deserve premium multiples, but at those prices, they'd be more in between 20 and 30 times earnings. And that's where I think we need to get to on the stocks that became really overextended. Now, there's still plenty to do. If you want to stay invested, like, hey, maybe look at international. That's not overextended. International collectively trades at a fraction of the U.S., and there's some really great growth ahead in some of those stocks. You can look at dividend stocks. You can parse through tech. Like, you could look at Cisco and Intel while you maybe ignore the big, you know, the big fangy tech right now. So there's stuff to do. But when I'm talking about there's still a lot that we're nowhere near a bottom, I'm talking about in the parts that I think are frothy. And even though they're down a lot, I think they have a lot of, of um, valuation reconciliation still to do. The valuations are reconciling, All right, so but Pete, they haven't reconciled. So, so Pete, let, let's, let's go there, okay? Um, we mentioned DocuSign, Teladoc, some of those names. DocuSign, 61% off of its 52-week high. We, we just had that up. It's Etsy, it's a DoorDash, Wayfair, Roblox, which you know Josh Brown has bought uh, recently and said yesterday when he was with us that he's used the dislocation in the market to buy more of that. I mean, at what point does a, a Roku at 67% off of its 52-week high start to get somewhat attractive? Again, you may not pick the exact bottom. And we're not suggesting that anybody right. on the panel is, you know, ha- has such incredible skill to be able to either call the top or, or pick the bottom. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If you're close, you're close. At what point have these stocks come down right. enough that suggests, okay, I'm a longer-term investor. Maybe I, I, I can take advantage of this opportunity. And then there's the Jenny call that says, no, these stocks have come down a lot. Don't fool yourself because they have a lot more to go. Yeah, I, I, that is a difficult one to answer exactly because, you know, you do watch these stocks that deserve to be falling. I mean, like when you look at these stocks that you're talking about, uh, Scott, they really are uh, exactly the category we talked about a year and a half ago while we were in the midst of the pandemic and we started to see these unbelievable, re- you know, the recovery, but also the stay at home trade. Right. And we looked at all these names and I used to come on all the time with you saying, hey, look, when you got zero P.E. or a triple or a quadruple P.E. in terms of digits, that's a problem. And, and are they going to ever make money, some of these companies? And the answer is, we really don't know. But if they do, it's still somewhere out in the future. So I think that it, all, that it, it, it is a stock-by-stock stock type of evaluation that we all have to go through. But I think, I think there are names out there that are great names that make a lot of sense. I think a Zoom, for instance, makes sense like that. But 
what is the val what should the valuation really be and each one of us would probably have a different number for that but it's it does come down to where is the pe and just because they have come down 50 60 70 percent doesn't mean these names are necessarily cheap and i i, I could give you a handful of names right now where I'd say, absolutely, you'd probably stay away from it. I think, you know, for a long time, and I'll never forget the conversation you and I had about Peloton, and it was about a year and a half ago, and I said, look, the problem is people are social. People want to go back to gyms. So at some point, that will slow down. And then when the demand wanes, that's going to be a problem because when do they actually make money, real money? When do they actually have a real PE? And, you know, that, those are, that's just a small example. I think there are so many other names out there where we look at them and we say, well, you know, this thing is great. It's down about 50%. Is that really the measuring stick? I don't think so. It's when will they make money? Or if so, if they are making money, when will they start to accelerate? And is the atmosphere around it still there for them to make that kind of money? And I think those are... Each individual name is going to be a different, I think, along that way. But that's how you have to analyze this thing right now. And I think that's why Netflix got attractive to me. When you look at Netflix right now and the fact that it's trading probably close to about an upper 30s, maybe low 40s P.E., that's finally in that ballpark of, hey, you know what? That doesn't seem so bad, uh, you know, comparatively speaking. It's in a it's in a zone now that makes a little bit more sense. And oh, by the way. Their earnings continue mm -hmm. to grow. Yes, margins have taken a little bit of a hit, but their earnings are growing. And when they actually can grow a little bit more internationally, I think that will be the answer for that stock to go higher as well. You know, uh, Scott, I'm noticing as you're talking. Hey, hang on. Hang on, Weiss. Hey, hang on, Weiss, real quick. Okay. Um, I, okay. I got you in a second. Okay. Uh, and I'll let you comment on what I'm going to uh, mention in a moment. It's the fact that as Pete's talking, I'm noticing the NASDAQ is, is sliding a little bit further, and it's right at the 14,000 level, which is deemed to be a pretty critical level from strategists on Wall Street. So there's your NASDAQ, barely, now it's under, all right? Now that means it's a decline of a little more than 1%. Michael Hartnett, Bank of America, calls NASDAQ 14,000 today a, quote, supremely important level to hold in Q1. So it's on the verge of giving that up. Now, you would think, okay, if it closes below that level, that's obviously the most significant thing to keep your eye on. So we're below the 200-day moving average, Steve. And I recall a week ago today when Josh Brown was on the program, I'm not, I can't remember if you were on the day or not, where he mentioned the NASDAQ closing uh, below its 200-day moving average on a Friday and the ramifications that could uh, be as a result of that into the following week. Let's re let's remember what Josh told us last Friday, and I'd like you to react to that same sort of scenario, Steve. Here's Josh from last week. The next time the Nasdaq gets back below the 200-day, and if it stays there uh, through a, a a Friday afternoon, I think you're going to see uh, I think you're going to see the type of selling activity where Pete will concede the word puking becomes the actual correct uh, technical term. So what we're talking about in that type of scenario is the sort of indiscriminate selling in the top 100 NASDAQ names that really hasn't happened yet. I mean, this is why Weiss, you know, some look at the action and, and you said it yourself right off the top of the program that, that you don't think this is the, the puke, so to speak, that you need to see to feel comfortable enough saying that maybe a bottom is in. Bespoke had an interesting tweet today about the action in the NASDAQ lately. First time in over 20 years 
that the Nasdaq was up 1% intraday and finished down more than 1% on back-to-back -back days. First time in 20 years. So just react to, to what Josh had yeah, to say. So I, I thought it was a smart view on the market. And, and here we are. We're on a Friday afternoon. We're in danger of giving up 14K uh, on, on NAS. And we're below the 200-day. And you don't want to close below that level. Well, first of all, um, I'm sorry to say it being as direct as I am. I'm going to disagree with both you and Josh. That's not how fundamental investors manage money, pure and simple. I look at it as useless information. If it goes below 200-day, then it's going lower. If it stays above, then it's going higher. Could care less. What's my view on what's going on? What's my view on rates? I think the market's going lower, which is why I've been negative on the market for weeks, as we said. Roblox, not time to buy it. In fact, I'm short Roblox. It's going lower. So I'm looking at the market, and I'm seeing that what suffers is a lack of humility. Like people that come on and say, the market's bottoming, bottoming Wednesday of next week. Or if we hold the 200, then we're going higher. That's ridiculous. That's not how real people manage money. Sure, you have some quants out there that may look at it that way, and algos that kick in. But 90% and people on this show, you can ask a show of hands, that's not what they're looking at. Okay, what they're looking at is where is their real value? Where's it stop going down? And it's not going to be in Roblox is still looking to lose money for years to come. So I think that okay. we are still seeing that decline until more humility comes into the market. And people say, you know what? I can't pick the bottom on a specific day and hour. I can't pick the top. And then you'll get some reasonable analysis. I, uh, I, and you I understand. I understand, and, and I, I, should have, I should have foreseen that that, that was going to be your answer uh, when, when I threw up a, a soundbite fr from Josh. Um, the fact of the matter is, It's not is, Josh, Steve, it's reality. Um, no, okay. No, the reality is, though, that technicals do, at times, have a lot to do where the market trades. And if you have had a, a, a destruction in the NASDAQ like we've had, and you start to close repeatedly right. below a 200-day moving average, and you're worried about a further flush, and then on a Friday afternoon, you close significantly below the 200-day moving average, that could indeed precipitate a bigger move into the next week. I mean, you may not follow it. You may not care about it. That's the, the same. Fact no, of the that's matter not true. Is, I do look at... Can I say one thing on this? Stock, I... I, I hold hold yeah, on. After Steve does. I still... I look at technicals... I look at technicals, but that's more the symptom. That's not the reason. I'm looking for the reasons for that happening. But no, I understand thing, that, but reason that or whatever, the, the, the fact of the matter is, Jenny, hold on. I, I'll get you, I promise. I'll come to you in a second. The, the, the fact of the matter is, though, Steve, the, the reason makes no difference. If the market, if, if there's a technical thing at play, and it has influence on where the market trades. The, the reasoning behind what you believe about the market really doesn't matter. You're going to have to trade it wherever it goes. And if it trades lower on a Friday or it closes below its 200-day moving average and further below that level, I think many people would view that as an ominous sign. Reason be damned. It's just the, the fact of the way markets trade sometimes. You, you know, Scott, you're right. There are a segment of managers that use algos, that use triggers, technical triggers. You find it more 
appropriately in the credit markets than you do in equities. And they manage a lot of money. I'm talking about the number of people, the population of people that run money typically don't run money that way. They don't have the ability to do it. However, I look at it at points of entry. So I'm not going to catch a falling knife if a stock continues to trade down. My point is, if you don't wait for that, you get in front of it. So if I don't wait for it to hit the 200-day moving average, and I have a point of view, which I did, which has been negative before it got there, then I'm ahead of it. Right. I'm not catching that falling knife or selling into a decline. I've already sold. So it's a difference in strategy. I'm not belittling it. Technical analysis is a legit strategy. It's just not one that I've used, nor have I seen the most successful investors over the last 35 years use it as their dominant investment strategy. Sure. And I'm not even suggesting and nor do I think Josh was that, you know, using that as your in and or out strategy, but more a factor of life in that, you know, technically speaking, when you've had a significant amount of technical damage, the the more damage you have, the more destructive it can be, particularly as we have seen a Friday afternoon having more damage happen and what the ramifications have sometimes been historically into the following week. Jenny, I'll give you the last word as I promised I would, and then we're going to take a break. So here's what's important to remember is that 85% of the average daily trading volume is by robotic, you know, algorithmic trading programs. So you're both, Scott, I actually agree almost entirely with you here. And Steve, you're painting a lovely picture for those of us who are fundamental investors. But the reality is, is that as fundamental investors, we are at the mercy of the algorithmic trading programs that are based on on the um, charts and on the quantitative on the quantitative measurements. So what we have is we have two different time frames, right? In the short term, Josh is right and Scott's right, and we are at the mercy of those trading programs that might just trigger more sales if the Nasdaq trades below fourteen thousand. As humans and as fundamental investors, we have one advantage, and that's that we have brains and that we have a longer time period. So we can use that brain, understand that this is programmatic, that this is not like actual people making investments, and we can and we can take advantage of it of the dislocations. But we need to separate the timeframes and we need to be real that they have a huge influence on the market and we cannot override that and we cannot discount it. It's just a different market now than we, when we all started 25 and 30 and 40 years ago. And it's really hard to deal with. Uh, let's do this. Let, let's take a quick break. Uh, NASDAQ is below uh, 14K. Again, uh, some notes being passed around today. It's a critical level uh, to watch right now in the NAS. We'll come back and we'll welcome in Mark Fisher. He is one of the best oil traders of all time. Crude oil is on pace for its best month in almost a year. He's going to give us his trade, not just in oil, but something he says is that can't miss right now. He's with us next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Moments ago, a federal judge in Texas ruled that the government cannot require federal workers to get vaccinated against COVID. In November, President Biden issued an order to require three and a half million workers to get vaccinated or seek an exemption. Three big CDC studies are giving more evidence that COVID vaccinations and boosters keep people out of the hospital. One study found three doses of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, giving more than 80 percent protection against hospitalization with the Omicron variant. The Justice Department has charged a Texas man with making violent threats against local election officials in Georgia. It's the first case of its kind since the 2020 presidential election. It's being brought by a new special task force that focuses on efforts to disrupt elections at the local level. And in Syria, more than 100 militants from the Islamic State group are attacking a prison, holding thousands of suspected extremists. Forces controlling the prison say that seven of their fighters have been killed, along with at least 23 Islamic State attackers. We're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, energy, the best performing sector of the year, up about 13 percent, the only positive sector this year. That backs up a great year last year. As well. So, for more on how to make money in the space right now, we're joined by one of the most successful commodity traders of all time, Mark Fisher. He's the CEO of MBF Clearing. Fish, welcome back. It's good to see you today. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It, it, it's good to have you, uh, given where we have been in the commodity space and, and where we, we may be going. I mentioned the kind of year that oil's already having. And, and let's take that part of the complex first. Are we going to $100? Is it a formality at this point? How do you see things? Let me just comment one thing before we get to that, because of what your parents said. It, what's interesting is when you talk about the commodity markets and trading, is that now all these intraday reversals that happen every other day in the futures markets are now starting to happen in the, in the, in the stock markets, you know, the, the NASDAQ reversals. So to me, what's interesting about what your panelists just said is that this, the, what the commodity markets are starting to trade like the stock markets used to trade, where it's the buy the dip mentality, while the stock markets are trading like the commodity markets used to trade. And in terms of that, eventually, you know, oil is as long as the as long as we're trying to go ahead and replace dirty oil, you know, coal, oil, nat gas with re- reliable renewable energy. And yet we still have the supply dif- uh, differential where we're not going to be able to supply as much. And where companies like Exxon and BP have pledged to go carbon neutral and are spending much more of their capex on renewable energy and less on, you know, you know conventional energy. The handwriting's on the wall. Eventually we're going to trade even higher. We, it's, I mean, it, it, it's going to happen. Whether it's $100, $95, $110, I, I don't know. But... Overall, the pictures go, you know, is we're going to go much higher. Because of the, the supply demand equation that you you just said, I mean, what's your view? I know you, you must have a, a, a broader market view um, than just commodities. I know that's your 
you know, the, your acumen and that's the, the principal thing you, you look at. But do you feel like we're in an environment of a, a major dislocation happening within the equity market because of, of where interest rates may go and these expectations of, of Fed policy? Well, I don't really trade much equities because that's not what we do. But with the, with the equity market starting to trade like the futures markets do, it's a lot more attractive to us. But on that hand, think about this. Okay, If the Fed wants to lower inflationary expectations, the government already tried that in the commodity markets unsuccessfully. I mean, the day that the administration announced the strategic reserve um, initiative, since if you bought the market in, in crude oil, the market's rallied $20 within five minutes. That was the low. So if you really want to lower inflationary expectations, does the Fed want the next you know, 10% move in the equity and debt markets to be up or to be down? I don't know. That, that's a question for your panel, not for me. But I, I kind of think that you want to lower the froth in the market. You want to lower the real estate prices. You want to, you know, cut off. Because remember, people trade on perception reality not what really is reality in everything. So in order to affect inflationary expectations, which then affects eventually inflation, you need to cut off, you need to change the perception. They're not going to be able to do it in the futures markets. They're not going to be able to do it in the oil markets. They're not going to be able to do it in the grain markets. So it limits how much they can really, you know, what they can really do. And I think that's why the paper markets are the ones that are being affected. What's, what's the most attractive part of the commodity complex as you see it today? Okay, well, I think the last four or five times I've been in the show, I'm batting 100, which means whatever I'm about to say, I'm going to be dead wrong on, because you know, that's just the way it's going to be. So take that with a grain of salt. But you know, I've been pounding the table to my guys and to anyone that listened to me that natural gas prices in the United States for next winter are ridiculously low to where they have to be. We've had the warmest second December on record in I don't even know how long, and the price still is around four bucks. Um, in the UK, right now, gas is trading $20-something. Uh, Dutch DTF gas is still trading $20 to trade at $80. And, if, and I think that with what's going on in the market, there's no way that next winter's nat gas is not going to have a huge rally before, we, you know, before reality even sets in of what, really, of what really happens next winter. So it's trading around four and a quarter. The risk is probably 50 cents. The upside is probably a dollar and a half. And I think the probability is in, in our favor. But again, saying that, I've been right the last couple of times, so I'm due to get smashed. <laughs> Everybody, even the greatest hitters of all time, strike out a fair yeah, amount, yeah. Fish. Um, I mean, Rod, you, you reference Rod Carew was, um, was the best hitter, right, Scott? And he, was, he only batted, what, 330, 340, whatever it was. That's how, that's how it works out uh, more times than not. You referenced listening to our conversation uh, earlier on the show and you, you referenced the, the panel and wanting to take some of, you know, what you were saying and, and see what they thought. Let, let's do it. Um, Kerry, do you um, do you have an opinion on, on what Mark has said about commodities, natural gas, oil, energy, whether that sector is, is able to maintain the momentum that it seems to have? Well, I don't quite have. Uh, a prediction because I think that's really tough to do. But I'll tell you, as a former energy analyst, one of my first assignments at Fidelity was to follow the integrated oils. 
And it was during a period of time where I think the price was in the teens, low to mid-teens. I mean, we're going back a long time. And then it started to rise. And everyone said when it got to, you know, 90, that it was going to 250 a barrel. So having watched a few of these cycles where people get incredibly excited and those who are experts in the field just predict that it'll never turn down again. I'm just wondering um, how Mark feels so certain that the um, process of supply and demand, where lots more supply won't come on stream and demand is growing somewhat, but there's a lot of pressure uh, to, uh, to use alternatives. Won't that eventually turn the market the other way? Carrie, I'm a much more short-term oriented trader. That's where our bread and butter is. And to be honest with you, Scott, right at this point, I'm more, I'm bearish, you know, the, the energy market for the next week or two because of a lot of reasons. You had a 19th of the month cycle. The next time you have Joe on, he can tell you about it. You have a double roll coming, coming up. And, you know, um, with a double roll coming, coming up next month and, the, and, and a parabolic move typing around the 19th of the month, for the next two weeks, I'm not so bullish. But I do think, okay, if I take my fundamental hat on, it's going to be very difficult for the market to really get back below, call it $70. Can we trade, you know, in a a spike down? Yes, but I think that'd be a a dip to buy. Can we go to $100, $120? Maybe. But I do think, as opposed to what other people think, if we go up because of, let's say, um, a Russia situation or a China situation or, I don't know, um, you know, a Middle East situation, that's going to be met by a huge supply increase from from OPEC because that's the last thing anybody wants. So I'm not worried about geopolitical. I'm worried about supply and demand. I'm worried about the fact that there's less CapEx being spent, I t- talking to everybody. And, I'm, and I think that in reality, inflation expectations before high prices are the best, you know, um, uh, solution for high prices. But now when everyone's just, just in this inflationary spiral, where everyone's just passing along their price increases, high prices may, may stay here for a lot longer than people think, especially in energy. Yeah. Mm. All right, Steve, Weiss has a, mm-hmm. Steve, Steve Weiss has a question for you, Fish. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Hey, Mark, how are you? My question goes to Russia, which you just mentioned. Ukraine has a lot of gas reserves. And isn't that what Russia is ultimately after as well? And doesn't that portend, because they're not going away, a potentially much higher spike in gas prices, to your point that you just made? Steve, I don't really know. You're you're much more in tune with the fundamentals of Russia and Ukraine. But I will tell you this. I'd be looking at what happens in Ukraine to wheat prices and thereby corn prices because Ukraine has, you know, exports a lot of wheat out of there. So if you get if you have a situation where the wheat exports out of Ukraine are affected, that could probably have a, a more significant effect than even in, in, on oil prices. But I that, I leave that up to you. I'm, I'm not sure. Let, let me let me ask you lastly, Mark, before I, I let you go. And I know you you said and I, I know what you guys do um, for a living. It's really trading the contracts and and not so much the, the equity names. But are there which equity name or two are, are most attractive to you, either in the, the oil patch or, or natural gas? Do you have a recommendation that our viewers should take a look at? Since I'm just since that's not my space. Again, I'll just say that for me, I would take like an international one like BP and, I'll t- and I would take Exxon because I'm not as, I, I don't know equities. I, 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 I try to trade. We try to trade direction. 
but picking individual names is never our forte. But, you know, BP, Exxon, where they're both trying to go, eventually now go carbon neutral, where they have the biggest, you know, footprint in the markets, where they have the biggest, um, you know, capital herd. And I, and I think they have the best expertise. So to me, those would be the two names I would take. I appreciate it uh, very much. Uh, uh, we'll see if you continue your 1,000 batting average. Uh, you said 100 earlier. I know you meant 1,000 thousand, because 100 would be not nothing happy. to sneeze at. But 1,000 would be good. And somebody just texted me to say he's never wrong. So we're, uh, we're going to see. I appreciate the time today, Mark. Take care. All right. That's Mark Fisher, uh, MBF Clearing, joining us today. Hey, take a look at this mystery chart. The stock dropping today down 20% this week. Steve Weiss trimmed it recently. Our Jim Labenthal also owns it. I think you know what it is at this point. But we'll find out what's happening next when Farmer Jim joins us. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Shares of Cleveland Cliffs falling today off 20% this week alone, which is why Farmer Jim Labenthal joins us now to discuss. Uh, Jimmy, I appreciate you doing this. Look, I, I, I was getting a lot of feedback on Twitter about this. People follow you into the stock and they want to know what you're doing with what is your largest position, as best I can still tell. And certainly in a week in which Steve Weiss said earlier in the week that he had been taking some profits. Now, I don't want to make this really between you two. I want to have a substantive conversation here about a stock that you love and have a big position in that's gotten hammered pretty well. What do you do? Um, So first off, thank you, because this is a great opportunity to get the message out. And I see the tweets on Twitter. I can't always respond to them. Um, Here is the story. This is a stock, just for perspective, that over the last two years, going back to before the pandemic, has had four times the return of the S&P 500. I think it's going to beat the S&P 500 mightily over the next year. But with that sort of return, volatility comes. Now, let me so let me just stress that point. You can't have those returns without some breathtaking dips. But the fundamentals are very strong here. Yes, some people will sell will say steel prices are down by 25 percent from their recent highs. 
But iron ore prices are down 40%, which means margins are expanding. And volume is picking up as autos get produced, as infrastructure gets spent. And by the way, yesterday, Intel announced they're building a $20 billion fab in Ohio, which is the home state of Cleveland, which is the town after which Cleveland Cliffs is named. I, you know, I can connect the dots, but let me cut to the chase. The free cash flow from this company right now and for the foreseeable future is tremendous. It's on the order of 25% plus relative to the market cap, a 25% free cash flow yield. There are about to be massive share buybacks uh, because they're almost done delevering the balance sheet. So this volatility, while it stinks, is something you've just got to get through. And I'm not selling a share. I'm not going to try to trim this. Uh, I didn't use this as a cash raise for the correction that I'm seeing. Uh, I'm staying with this because I see very good gains ahead, much better than the S&P 500. Yeah, and you were the one, by the way, who, who said that this could be the week that we do see yeah. a, a major correction uh, start to pick up some kind of steam. So let me bring in Weiss. And Weiss, just let our viewers know once more um, why you trimmed your position in, in this company and what you think about what Jim said. And again, let's not do jokes. Let's do real analysis. Yeah. So, so what I said when I sold it is that I wanted to buy Eastman Chemical because I thought that was cheaper and that it was more under the radar and was going to be re-rated. Given my market exposure, I didn't want to put more money into the market. And I have a negative bias uh, against commodity stocks that I violate every once in a while and go into them. I agree with Jim's analysis on Cleveland Cliffs. I just thought there was more upside and less risk in, uh, in Eastman Chemical. I also put a small short on in Freeport last night, yesterday afternoon. So it's more my view on what's happened with the economy, with rates coming down, which could signal to equity investors, I think it'll be short term, that there's weakness in the global economy. And that's why I did it. So no more exposure for equities. I had to make a choice. I still mm -hmm. own half of Cleveland Cliffs, and I'm sticking with it now. And I might buy more down here, you know, actually, because it's gotten really cheap. I got you. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that as well. It's not like you sold your position. You simply just trimmed it. Jim, I'll give you the last word. I mean, there are, you know, questions about the strength of the global economy, which uh, undoubtedly will continue uh, to swirl and potentially impact a name like this. And those are those are legitimate concerns. I think they're short term in nature. Uh, you know, whether they're talking about Russia invading Crimea or or, you know, Omicron's effects, these are likely to be temporary. What seems much more long legged to me is that the job market is strong. GDP is nicely positive. You've got infrastructure spending. I mean, I can go through that again. Don't underestimate supply chain onshoring. I mentioned Intel, but what about Samsung in Texas? What about Taiwan Semi in Arizona? What about the EV battery plants? We're in a good spot in the economy. This is a growth scare, but it's not real. It's a scare, not real. You're the best, man. Um, as I said on Twitter, you don't run and hide. You, you come face the music when one of your trades doesn't happen to be working, and we give you props when they do work. But we, we do uh, love the accountability of all of you uh, when you've got a stock that's down and people may have followed you into it. Jim, you have a good weekend. We'll see you soon, pal. It's a privilege, Judge. Thank you. All right. Pete's got unusual activity when we come back. Unusual activity, Pete. What do you see today? 
All right, I'm going to start off with NVIDIA. Now, this is a name that's hit in the past many, many times. Sometimes it's been absolutely dead on, sometimes not so much. But it's interesting because when you look at this stock, it was trading anywhere between 232 and 247, 248 at the top end. So a lot of buyers coming in, about 19,000 of the January 28th expiring calls. Those are getting bought. Those were size, 19,000 of those. Starting at about 250, went all the way up to about seven. I just looked before I came on. They're presently trading somewhere around 420, 425, somewhere in that range, Scott. Looking for a little upside, you got one week before these expire. Dynatrace is my next one, DT. This is not a name that we brought up a lot, but we have seen some activity of late that's hitting there as well. We're talking about intelligence platforms here. Now, 35,000 of the February 50 calls were bought. They were spread off, but they bought 35,000 of these calls trading for about $3.80. As they spread it off, the cost of the spread against the 55s was about $2. I got one last one for you, Scott. The spiders. We didn't get a chance to talk about this at the very beginning, but SPY, we have a huge buyer in there as well. They were looking out and they bought the June, so buying a lot of time, which is unusual, something we don't talk about Mm. a lot. But these June 498 calls, 32,000 of those for $2 were purchased as well, part of a spread. So maybe looking for a bounce, but actually with patience looking all the way out to June. You did that as well. I mean, it just obviously signifies near-term volatility, turbulence, who knows what else, but then a recovery and then a a move higher in the S&P. Well, like you know, and Tom Lee told us, he said tumultuous in the first half, then we start to move to the upside. So maybe looking at that, too. Yeah. All right, Pete, I appreciate that update. Thanks for that. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades on the other side. All right, uh, we're going to do final trades in a second. Let me give you an update on the market. There's the Dow down 160. NASDAQ kind of at the lows of the day or thereabouts, under 14,000. That's a key level that we've certainly been paying a lot of attention to today. 13,979 is where the NASDAQ is currently trading, really the epicenter of the more turbulent trade of late, the volatility existing there, of course. The 10-year yield, yields are down today. 175 is where the 10-year note yield currently sits. So we keep our eyes peeled to that for the remainder of the day. See where we close it out on this Friday as well. Jenny Harrington, why don't you kick us off with final trades, please? Sure. Verizon. Earlier this week, I bumped it up for clients who were underweight. I think it's a wonderful spot where you can make some money, keep your head down and hide out. And a nice dividend. All right. (laughs) Dividend play. Yeah, exactly. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, Carrie Firestone. UNH United Healthcare, solid grower, market multiple, beating the market in growth, and Optum Managed Care growing with employment. It's growing. Mr. Weiss. Not putting anything to the market, but on my shopping list is on semi. All right. Well, uh, you let us know when you, when you do something there. And Pete Nigerian, I see you at the bottom. Will do. Yeah, I'm going to give you Freeport McMoran. I like steel, but copper I like even more. So Freeport, FCX. All right, great weekend, everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. 
Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.